I don't know if you saw recently a, a viral video that has made its way uh, in social media. It was reported by uh, the South China Morning News. It was a video of a Chinese woman on a train somewhere in China who had sat in the wrong seat on the train. She was supposed to sit on the aisle seat, I believe 10D, but instead she sat on the window seat 10F, which was someone else's seat. In this extraordinary video, when the train conductor alerted her that she was in the wrong seat, instead of apologizing and moving seats, she began to rant and to throw a tantrum at the conductor so that all in the train compartment could hear her that it is not her fault that she was sitting in the wrong seat. She said that the instructions should be more clear that the train, although it had the designation on the train, should be printed bigger. How was she supposed to know what an aisle seat was and what a window seat is? Well, it's real simple. The window seat is the one next to the window. The aisle is the one next to the aisle. But she continued her diatribe, and she says, my ticket doesn't say that I can't be in the wrong seat. And her argument became more and more ridiculous. And of course, everyone on social media shared what a crazy woman this was. Basically, blaming everyone for being wrong except for her. Her punishment was to be fined 200 RMBs. And for 180 days, almost half a year, she's unable to ride a train. Of course, most of us would shake our heads in disbelief Oh, this is because this woman is from China. No. This can happen to people of all nations and ethnicity, and this can happen to us. Because in reality, we all do this. We blame everyone else for the problems in our life. It is no different today as it was no different in the time of Ezekiel. You see, in the time of Ezekiel, they blamed their forefathers. They blamed the generation before them for being wicked and sinful. And that was what they thought was the reason why God was judging them so severely. But they were going to learn a very important lesson. That they needed to stop blaming others and begin to look at themselves. Because God will remind the people of Israel that it was the current generation and their guilt of wickedness and sin that was the impetus for God's divine judgment. They had a personal problem and they needed to own up to their own responsibility to deal with their own sin problem. And this lesson, my friends, is extremely important today as this generation, young and old, is characterized as a generation that does not take personal responsibility for much of anything, much less actions. It's always someone else's fault. Someone else is to blame. And so we blame our families. We blame our circumstances. We blame our father and mother who loved another sibling more than they loved us. And we never simply look at ourselves to see if we've done anything wrong. To be a watchman of our generation we have to own up to our actions. We need to take some personal responsibility and accept the positive and negative consequences that come with our actions. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18. We continue our study in the book of Ezekiel in our sermon series entitled Watchmen. We are challenging the church how to be the watchmen of this generation as we march towards our 50th anniversary. And in Ezekiel chapter 18, we're going to draw out three biblical principles about what God has to say regarding this matter of personal responsibility. Look at me at Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, What do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying, 
The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. Apparently, there was a proverb, a saying, that was quite popular that was going around the region. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In fact, it was such a popular saying that even the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, references it. And the point of this popular saying was that the children are suffering because of the parents' sin. The people in Ezekiel's time thought that they were suffering under the hand of the Babylonians because of their parents' sin, not because of their own sin, which was the real case. And therefore, there were those who were blaming God that He was unfairly punishing them because of the sins of their fathers. And so they began to propagate this popular saying. We're like the Israelites of old. Whenever we're in trouble or whenever we get into trouble, we never first look to see if we have done anything wrong. Initially, we often think that we are being unfairly punished. Someone else's fault. For example, in school, when you're caught talking, when your teacher reprimands you, calls your attention for disrupting the class and talking, instead of accepting the fact that you were indeed talking, your heart says, she's so unfair, why does she pick on me? Someone else caused me to talk. Someone talked to me first. Is that not what you want to tell your teacher? He talked to me first. I'm just replying. In the business world, it's the same. My business is caught cheating, and instead of admitting it, I blame the fact that our country is very corrupt. Thievery runs rampant in our country. Or my business partner made me do it. Or the circumstances of my life compelled me to cheat. And so our sinful self naturally blames others. What does God say about this? Look at verse 3. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. God said, I'm going to refute this popular saying because it is not true. God is punishing the people of that generation, not because of the sins of their fathers, but because of their own sin in the present time. Remember, it was these very people who brought idolatry into the very temple of God, hiding it into the temple, according to Ezekiel chapter 8, but seen by God, which forced the glory of God to leave the temple. These people were not innocent. Perhaps these people misconstrued the word of God. They remember the word of God in in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, again repeated in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7, and in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, where it talks about punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And we often use these verses also out of context, just as they perhaps did. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, does not speak about sins being passed to the next generation. It talks about the consequences. It talks about the effects of sinful actions of a father, of a grandfather, of a great-grandfather that propagates itself into the succeeding generations. So perhaps if a grandfather has a mistress or an extra family, there will be harmful consequences. And the effects of that perhaps will damage the generations to come. But the grandfather's sin is not put upon his son or his grandson. Because nowhere in the entirety of the Scriptures does it teach that God intentionally punishes someone for someone else's sin. Each person bears the responsibility of his own iniquities. Look at verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, as well as the soul of the Son, is mine. The soul who sins shall die. God says very clearly that each person must answer to God. 
all souls are mine. And there it is in the end of verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. Meaning that God is a just God. He judges those who have sinned on their own sin. Each individual is therefore personally responsible to God for their own sin. And so God is right and fair in judging that current generation of Ezekiel's time. Here's the first takeaway, the first lesson, the first truth I want you to understand. Number one of your taking notes. This is the lesson that God wants ingrained in the mind of the readers. God's judgments are based on each individual's personal actions. God's judgments are based on each individual's personal actions. Now to further drive home this point, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, will present three scenarios where this truth plays out. Three cases that proves his point regarding personal responsibility. What is the first scenario? Take a look at verses 5 to 9. But if a man is just and does what is lawful and right, but he has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, nor approached the woman during her impurity, if he has not oppressed anyone, but has restored to the debtor his pledge, has robbed no one by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he has not exacted usury nor taken any increase, but has withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, Verse 9, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He shall surely live, says the Lord God. The first scenario presents a man who is righteous, a man who is just. He follows the commands of God to a very specific way as enumerated in verses 6 to 8. He does not worship idols. He keeps sexual purity both as a single man and as a married man according to the Mosaic law. He does not take advantage of others and and shows compassion to others, verse 7. When he lends money to others, he does not try to profit from them by usury, which is excessive interest rates. He is fair in his dealings with others, verse 8. This is a righteous man who walks, note this in verse 9, in the ways of the God, in the ways of the Lord. He follows the commands that God has set. And therefore, this man, verse 9, shall surely live. Meaning he will not be judged if he's a righteous man while on earth. And he should not suffer for the sins committed by other people. His righteousness, his righteousness shares and shows that God has no right and God does not judge him because of his standing before God. Now, in this context, God was using this description of a righteous man to condemn most of the Israelites who were reading the book of Ezekiel. God was saying these Israelites of the current generation of Ezekiel's time are not like this man characterized by God in verses 5 to 9. Because they wondered why in the world are they getting judged. They were really good people. But God was reminding them Your perception of how good you are is not referenced against my word. Because God says in verse 9, He walked in what? My statutes. He walked according to the principles and the truths that I've set out. This is a good and a great reminder for us. Because a lot of us believe that we're pretty good. We only deserve God's best. We would never deserve God's punishment against us. We don't deserve God's discipline. But when you begin to think that, perhaps it's time to open up the Scriptures and put your life against the standard of the Word of God. We don't put our lives against the standard that the culture has set. We do not align our lives based on how much better we are than our friends. Because if we stack up our lives against our friends and the world, we'll always come out ahead. Because the thinking is, well, I'm better than my friends. I'm better than most of the world. 
And therefore, because I'm a good person, God could never punish me. But when we set our lives in contrast to the Word of God, that is the level of righteousness and Christ-likeness that we as Christians are to try to live out. You see, when we measure our lives against the world, it is a shifting standard. That's why I've said many times, don't rate your life based on how good or how bad you think you are. Rate your life against the standards that are set forth in the Word of God. Because the standard of good and bad in this culture and in this world always shifts. But the Word of God never changes because God doesn't change. And so His standards are for all cultures and for all times. I've often asked God, Lord, why didn't you let me live on earth 500 years ago? It would have been great to live in the time of the Renaissance. You know why? Because in the time of the Renaissance, around the 1500s, have you ever seen their paintings? All their paintings are of fat people. Just go to any museum, go to the section on Renaissance art, and it's just all fat people. Why? Because in the turn of the 15th century, fat was beautiful. Being fat meant that you were of royalty, it was celebrated. Unfortunately, something changed in these 500 years that now being skinny is beautiful. Lord, why didn't you let me live back then? But all joking aside, that just goes to show you that the standard of good and bad often changes with the times. But the Word of God never changes. You see, various lifestyles that were wrong decades before that are somehow accepted today is because of the changing values of our generation. But never once does the Bible change. So in the scriptures, the Bible says adultery is wrong. There is no justification for it. The Bible says that living out the homosexual lifestyle is wrong. Now, we're not talking about what causes the attraction, but acting out on it. That lifestyle, the Bible says, is transcultural, and it is wrong. But yet, our generation today accepts it. For a decade or two decades ago, we didn't accept it. You see, the standards for good and bad will always change and shift. But the Word of God never changes. And that's why this man is righteous. He walks in God's way. And because of that, he will surely live. means God's discipline will not be upon him unlike the many Israelites who thought they were pretty good and were somehow in shock that God was disciplining them. Now in a second scenario, look at verse 10 to 13. It describes an evil son of a righteous father. If he begets a son who is a robber or a shredder of blood, who does any of these things and does none of those duties, but has eaten on the mountain or defiled his neighbor's wife, he is, if he has oppressed the poor needy, robbed by violence, not restored the pledge, lifted his eyes to the idols, or committed abominations, if he has exacted usury or taken increase, shall he then live? The question is, will this evil son of a righteous father live? Verse 13, he shall not live. If he has done any of these abominations, he shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now, in this second scenario, this righteous man described in the first scenario has a son. And this son turns out to be very rebellious, very wicked. In fact, someone who murders. And the question is asked, what will happen to him? Verse 13, God is very clear. The verdict will be upon the son. He shall not live. Why? His blood shall be upon him. Note that there is no mention of the father. The acts of this wicked son are ascribed to him and to him alone and not the father. Now, we're not saying that this father is a perfect father. We're not saying that this father didn't show him all the love he needed to be shown. But it's interesting that there is no statement here regarding how the father raised him. It doesn't matter if this father was a perfect father or not. But God says, I punish this wicked son... 
because of what he has done. God says the proverb and the saying that's going around is wrong. The sins of the generation being disciplined is because of that generation's sin. Are there cases where righteous parents have rebellious children? The answer is absolutely. That's why so many parents ask me because they're in shock. Pastor, we did everything right. We sent our children to Christian schools. We brought them to church. Why do they no longer want to come to church? Why do they no longer have a relationship with Jesus? Did we do something wrong? What could have we done better? I'll ask them these questions. Did you try your best to raise up your child with Christian principles? Did you try to exemplify Christian principles through your actions? And if they answer yes, I'll move on to the next question. I'll ask them, did you show love in compassion and love in discipline to your children while they were growing up? They would answer yes. If they answer yes to those questions, I'll tell those parents, and you have done your responsibility. Don't beat yourself over the head with this because how your children are now acting is their own fault. And the best you can do is to pray that God would move in the hearts of your children, that they will be humble enough to listen to the Scripture's guidance for how to live life and perhaps yours. You see, everyone wants a guarantee on how to raise up a great child. And so they'll point to verses like Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. You know the verse. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Do you know cases where parents have trained up their children in the ways of the Lord, and they are far, far from the Lord? They went to a Christian school. They grew up in a church of Sunday school. But they are no longer worshiping God. And you look at Proverbs 22, verse 6, and you say, well, then the Bible is wrong. No. It's because we have misused it. This is part of wisdom literature of which Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes is a part and in wisdom literature, verses are speaking about general principles, not absolute truth. And the principle is that you and I as parents have a responsibility to train up our children in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord, building a foundation where they are imparted the truths of the Scripture so that it is with the hopes that when they grow up, the foundation that they learned as a child will be remembered when they get older at whatever life circumstance they go through, that they will remember the foundational truths of the Scriptures. It does not guarantee that you will have a godly child. You and I need to understand this, my friends. Righteous parents can have rebellious children because you're looking at one I had great godly parents pastors as parents they were wonderful parents they showed love and care and they created a wonderful family environment but some of you know my life story you know that there were years in my life that I stopped walking with God and did things I regret today I was not a Christian testimony but because my parents raised me in the fear of God and that the foundation of God's Word was instilled in my heart, and yes, they dragged me to church. And yes, they dragged me into family devotions. And they set a foundation of faith for me that when I began to walk another path, those things that were a part of my childhood learnings began to spring up when I was living a life that did not please God. I praise the Lord that by His grace I woke up and returned back to the Lord before it was too late and before I crossed any lines that I would regret. 
But if I did not come back to the Lord, and if He were to discipline me, it would not be the fault of my parents. Because the actions that I live out are my own personal responsibilities. And that's the problem of our Asian culture today. We so baby our children that even though they're 25 years old, we're still making decisions for them. And that's a problem because they will never understand or learn the full capacity of what taking responsibility means. Parents, teach your children responsibility. Don't come to the rescue every time and try to justify their actions. If they do something wrong, let them live with the consequences of their actions. Because the parents of today's generation will come sweeping in to the aid of their child, even though their child is clearly wrong. I see it in the church, I see it in the school, I see it in the community. And here's the problem. The parents, you are raising children who will only blame you for their actions. Teach them personal responsibility as young as they are. You have a responsibility to train them in the things of the Lord, but they have a personal responsibility to internalize it. Spiritual heritages propagate down the generation when each succeeding generation owns their own faith. Just because you have a godly grandmother just because you have godly parents doesn't mean that godliness or that spirituality automatically gets passed down to you. You and I have to own our own faith. There is a third scenario. Look at verses 14 to 18. If, however, he begets a son who sees all the sins which his father has done and considers but does not do likewise, who has not eaten on the mountains, nor lifted his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, nor defiled his neighbor's wife, has not opposed anyone, nor withheld a pledge, nor robbed by violence, but has given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, who has withdrawn his hand from the poor and not received usury or increase, but has executed my judgment and walked in my statutes. In this third scenario, the wicked son of scenario two has a son. Most people will assume, well, then he would be wicked. But surprisingly, look at verse 14. He begets a son who sees that all the sins which his father has done is something he doesn't want to follow. So instead of following the wicked ways of his father, he follows the righteous way of his grandfather. How will God treat him? Verse 17, look carefully. He shall not die... For the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. Here's the verdict. The righteous son does not die for the sins of his father. He will live. And the word live means that he would be delivered from God's judgment in his life. Now, it doesn't mean it's not teaching that by good works you can be saved. This is not a passage contextually about salvation or the eternal life. This is a contextual passage about escaping God's purpose discipline in your life. So God is saying, I discipline you based on your own sin. The father's sins do not get passed down to his children. The father is punished, in fact, verse 18. For as his father, because he cruelly opposed, robbed his brother by violence, and did what was not good among the people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. You know, it's quite wonderful when you think about it. It means that it doesn't matter how wicked your family is. It doesn't matter how evil your family is. It doesn't matter if your family is not walking in the ways of the Lord. You can start today a spiritual heritage in your family. You are not beholden to your family's sinful way. If you are following along in our Faces of Grace stories that are on our church's Facebook page, very early on, I believe story number three is the story of PJ. A story where a young man left his father's company 
because his father was not operating his company in a godly way. And the son left the father's company because he wanted to do things right and to set a good example for his own child. And so he desired to break that chain of sinful living. Knowing that wickedness is not automatically passed down to the child is a wonderful ray of hope for men and women to take up the mantle of their own personal responsibility to live for the glory of God. You can today live a spiritually Christ-like life even if your parents or your family does not. But are you willing to do so? Because it's hard. If this is how your family has always done it, it may require that you leave your family's company. It may require that your family does not understand you, even though you've tried to explain it to them lovingly. It may require that you're ostracized and kicked out of the family. But are you going to take the personal responsibility of living a Christ-like life? Because when you see your Savior face to face, I don't think he wants to hear, well, Lord, you put me in this family, and this was a non-Christian family, and so I just kind of went along with the flow. God doesn't want to hear your excuses because God says it very clearly. He does not die for the iniquity of his father. You and I need to take up personal responsibility for our own actions, not blaming others. Parents, teach your children responsibility. Tell them that they don't have to live their life like yours. Tell them that you're not perfect. Tell them that they can be better than you. Stop covering for them. Because children will often say, well, dad and mom did it. Teach them that dad and mom are sinful and they're trying to live out the principles of scriptures, but they themselves will be judged against the principles of scriptures themselves. So important was this principle that God's judgments are based on each individual's personal action that in the second part of this chapter where it goes to a question and answer session with God, he reiterates and reissues this biblical truth. Look at verses 19 and 20. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Here's the question. Why is it that the son doesn't bear some responsibility for the sins of the father? Verse 19. Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Here it is again, so very clear. God's judgments are based on individuals' personal actions. There's a crazy teaching today that's permeating some churches. It's a belief in what are called generational sins. It is not biblical teaching. And in this teaching called generational sins, it's a teaching that says that somehow the sins of the father and the grandfather are passed on to you and you have to try really, really hard to break the bondage of that sin that somehow is genetically wired to you. If you ever hear someone teaching about generational sin, would you point them to verse 20 of Ezekiel chapter 18? It's so clear here. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father. You know why this theology grew and was accepted because men and women wondered why they could not break the cycle of sin that was permeating their family. And so instead of looking at their own lives and saying, I never yielded to God, I never surrendered my life to God, I just really chose not to live a holy life, 
I just blame my grandfather and my father. My grandfather had a mistress. My father had a mistress. Well, I had one. It was their fault. The blood of Jesus Christ, when you receive him as your personal Savior, washes away all sins. It breaks the bond of all sins. You and I are no longer shackled to our sinful life. We have been made new. There are no such things as generational sins. And therefore, my friends, you have no excuse. I have no excuse. I better live my life holy and pleasing to God. The second question, why would God want to save the wicked who repent and change their ways? Verse 21, but if a wicked man turns from all of his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions which he has committed shall be remembered against him because of the righteousness which he has done, he shall live. Again, the answer is, why does God save the wicked? The answer, verse 23 do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? Verse 23 gives you a glimpse into the heart of God. You know, some of us, as we study the book of Ezekiel, think that God is a mean God. He's a vengeful, judgmental God. He's not a compassionate God. If you have that perspective about God, reading through the book of Ezekiel, you have not read well. Because the heart of God is a heart of mercy, a heart of grace. He delights when the wicked turn from their evil ways. God the Son, Jesus Christ, God Himself, said the very same thing. He came to earth to do what? To save sinners. You see, the second truth, number two, if you're taking notes, is that God's desire is to see the wicked turn to righteousness. God's desire is to see the wicked turn to righteousness. And this is a great principle. Because coupled with the first principle, it shows us that it is God's desire and His enabling ability in our lives for us to turn from wickedness to righteousness. You see, if God judges us based on our personal actions then all we're responsible for is what? Our own personal actions to turn from wickedness to righteousness. It is not your responsibility to turn around the nation of the Philippines from corruption to righteousness. It is your responsibility at whatever sector of life you live to turn wickedness into righteousness in your area of responsibility. Because men and women today are so overwhelmed with the responsibility that they think that God has given them to transform the world. In fact, that's what you've been told ever since you graduated high school. You can change the world. I'm great at giving commencement speeches. I don't get invited to many of them because I don't talk much about world peace. What I want to tell you is this. You have a responsibility yourself to do what? To change yourself. Forget changing the world. Change yourself. And when you begin to change yourself, you begin to change the community around you. You've forgotten that. And it is God's heartbeat. It's God's desire that he sees the wicked turn to righteousness. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, to give us that ability. There is hope of escaping God's judgment when one starts to live a new life. There's a third truth, verse 24. When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? Here's the third question. If God restores a person from wickedness to righteousness, what about the other way around? 
If a person lives righteously and then later on in life he lives wickedly, will he be saved from his punishment? Does my bad works somehow can be overcome by the good works I did earlier in life? That's how a lot of people live their lives today. As long as I can balance this good works, bad works thing, as long as that I had maybe had about five years of being good and then one year of being bad, that God will see five to one. God says it doesn't work that way. Look at verse 24, the second part, very important. All the righteousness which he has done shall, would you circle that word, not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed, because of them he shall die. Surprisingly, what? All the righteousness, all the good deeds that I do will not be remembered by God when I just live a week in, in rebellion? And the Bible says, no. Your earlier good works will not negate the punishment of God when you do evil now. Now, again, we're not talking about the loss of salvation. We talked about this last week. Once saved, always saved. The blessings and the judgment in view in this passage refers to earthly temporal ones, not eternal ones. And the punishment of God in the form of His discipline could come in the withdrawal of blessings, could come in earlier death, could come in the discipline of sickness. You see, a lot of people have the notion that as long as the majority of my life is lived good, then if I stray every now and then, it'll be okay. God cannot punish me that hard, can He? That's what the Israelites thought as well, and God said, no, it doesn't work that way. And so the Israelites thought, well, that's not very fair, is it? Look at verse 25. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not fair. Hear now, O house of Israel, is it not my way which is fair and your ways which is not fair? God says, oh, hang on there. Time out, Israelites. It is fair. Because I judge you at your present state. And that's how you want it. I judge you based, in verse 26, of the iniquity which you have done. And you will die if you live in iniquity. And if you go all the way to verse 29, you see that the Bible tells us, God says, it is fair. It is fair because I look in the hearts of men and women. And if you sin, that, that means at that moment you are living in evil. It's not about a balance of good and bad. It's about how are you living in the present. I can take the wicked and turn him to a righteous person and then give him all of my blessings because at that moment he is a righteous man. It works the same way. If you are righteous early in life and you are wicked later in life, I'm going to judge you based on that wickedness. I know this seems a little bit heavy on the head, so let me give you some practical example. All right, let's say after you finish church today, you're driving back to your house, you're driving back to a restaurant, and you run a red light. I hope you won't do it on a Sunday. I want you, hope you won't do it any day, but let's just say for hypothetical sense, you go and you run a red light. And the MMDA officer sees you, pulls you over, and is ready to give you a ticket. How many of you would have the audacity to tell the officer, you know, officer, I have never run a red light in 10 years of my life. Today is the first day I ran a red light. You'd probably be lying, but anyways, for hypothetical sense. For 10 years, I have never run a red light. I just run a red light now, and you catch me. Would you consider not giving me a ticket because for 10 years I didn't run a red light? The officer would look at you and be like, what? I'm giving you a ticket now because, for, because of what you did? No. And you can't blame him. Because what you did not do in the past meant that you did not get a ticket earlier. Does that make sense? But a lot of us have this convoluted mindset that somehow our good works should accumulate 
and make up for our bad works later. It doesn't work in the real world, right? I was good for 50 years of my life to my wife. I loved her. I bought her anniversary gifts and birthday gifts, and then I killed her. Would any of you say, well, you did buy her 50 years worth of anniversary gifts. All right, we'll let it go. No one in their right mind thinks like that, right? You would be remembered as the killer. Not 50 years of loving her. We are judged at that moment. Let me give you another example. Let's say you were a rebellious child in high school, but you reformed your ways, and so you have now become an outstanding citizen. You work in a prestigious company. You worked hard with ethics, and, and your boss comes to you one day, and he says, I want to promote you to the position of being a vice president in this company, and I want to give you a raise, but I can't because I heard something about you. I heard that in high school you cheated in Chinese, and therefore you are a cheater, and I can't reward cheaters in high school. You say, what? That's not fair. 30 years I have reformed my life. Why are you punishing me for something I did back then? We would all say, well, that's not fair. You see my point? The point is, it's not about the past. It's about what we do in the present. And God judges us for what we do now. Here's the third truth, number three. God's ways are always fair. Previous good doesn't offset current evils. God's ways are always fair. Previous good does not offset current evil. I'll put it even in a simpler way. Good works do not offset bad works. Good works do not offset bad works. My friends, would you show your Catholic friends Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24? Would you show your Buddhist friends Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24? Because the Word of God says very clearly, all the righteousness which he has done, note this, shall what? Shall not be remembered. It doesn't matter if you give a billion pesos to charity. It doesn't matter if you give 10 billion pesos to charity. It doesn't matter if you are a really good person. If you are living a life of sin, God does not remember any of those things. That's why we say there are no good works that can overcome your bad works except by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Because it is impossible, it is impossible for you to buy your way into heaven. It is impossible for you to have your good works overcome your bad works. And if any of your friends push back, you give them that example of the MMDA. You give them the example of being married to a spouse for 50 years and then killing her. And then if they can say that's fair, then in their minds, they're hopeless because for them, good works overcomes bad works. It just doesn't work. God is always fair. Previous good doesn't offset evils. That's why I've said it many times. Beginning well is important, but finishing well is more important. But not only finishing well, finishing better. Begin well, finish better. Finally, the challenge, very quickly, three verses. Therefore I will judge you, verse 30, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his way, says the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. God is challenging his people. 
Repent. Turn from your sin. Cultivate a new heart, a new spirit. The cycle of sin is simply sin, repentance, sin, repentance, sin, repentance. But that cycle does not end until you and I, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, says, enough. It stops with me. It stops here and now. I choose not to commit this sin again. I choose to no longer look at pornography. I choose to break off this unhealthy relationship. I choose now to walk the ways of God and establish a new heritage for my family. God holds us to a standard of holiness foundation on scripture and he holds each one of us personally responsible stop blaming your family stop blaming your circumstances today you can establish a relationship with the lord turn from your sinful ways and pursue righteousness because he wants to see us turn from wickedness to righteousness that is the heart of god and he has enabled it through his son jesus christ and through the spirit he gives us that has victory over sin because good works never offsets bad so stop playing that game that I can be a little bit bad because I'm generally good it doesn't work you may come under the discipline of God and it is not pretty my friends you have been warned let's pray Father, I pray that your word would call each and every one of us here, including myself, to a life of personal responsibility. Help us to stop worrying about what the world does and worry about what we do. Help us to stop blaming others so that when we come before you face to face, that there are no excuses for how we have lived our life. We pray for the enablement of the Holy Spirit to be able to live a life such as this. With your help, we pray that this church will be filled with men and women who hold themselves personally responsible to live a Christ-like life so that we will be eligible and can be effective watchmen of this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.